questions. Um, uh, that's good. That means that you're engaged and you're thinking and you're thinking through the implications of all this. Um, and that's good. And I know it probably seems like uh, we're uh, drowning your thirst at the end of a water hose, uh, a fire hydrant. But uh, um, so when you get home, you can kind of look through your notes and, and digest it a little more slowly, um, you know, kind of review your notes and, and so forth. So um, we're going to talk now or address the issue of how the flesh relates to marriage. Uh, I want to talk generally about sowing to the flesh versus sowing to the spirit and, and sources of flesh corruption. Here's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, Christ was perfect uh, in the sense that he was sinless, but yet he existed in the flesh. I mean, that's one of the signs, actually, of whether or not it's uh, as the Holy Spirit versus a uh, deceiving spirit, a, a demonic spirit, is whether or not they will testify to whether Christ came in the flesh. So Christ existed in the flesh, and since he existed in the flesh, he existed in a flesh which was corrupted in the sense that it, was, it would eventually die. But on this side of heaven, what we see in Christ is that uh, it's as good as it gets. Um, and so, in terms of just his physiology, right? now obviously he was sinless, sinless perfection there, um, but he did exist in a corrupted flesh because he did die. He was killed okay, in that sense. Uh, so, uh, it, it, his flesh was mortal, just like ours is. And scripture, we read the scripture in Hebrews 2 that said he participated in flesh and blood for our sakes. So, we're going to look at how the flesh relates to this issue of marital counseling. And uh, I'll have to tell you a, a good joke uh, after a while for that. But I'll start out. I told you that I lived in New Orleans for a while, and I went to the seminary there. And uh, this is just to get our brains back engaged here. But but uh, when I first started at the seminary, I worked in the cafeteria. And uh, in the afternoons, we would get sort of slow. And so I was working in the cafeteria, and this guy walks in. And he's got these big pointy cowboy boots on, this huge belt buckle, big hat. And uh, I thought, this guy's got to be from Texas. Well, it turns out he was from Maine. Go figure. I, I don't know. But uh, he walks over to where we had the coffees, and we were just beginning to sell the flavored coffees. And he said, he says, what's this southern pecan coffee like? And I said, uh, well, that's pecan. And he says, well, in Maine, we say pecan. I said, well, in Albany, Georgia, the pecan capital of the world, we say pecan. And he said, well, in Maine, a pecan is what granny keeps under her bed on a cold winter's night. And then he said, as though he couldn't stop there, he said, now, what do you call the uppermost part of your home? I said, the what? He says, you know, the uppermost part of your home, the rough. I said, well, in Albany, Georgia, rough is when you don't know the difference between a Johnny Pot and a pecan. So... <laughs> So that was kind of interesting, those different dialects there. All right, we want to look at uh, the flash. We're up and running here, and everything's sounding good. So um, let's look at uh, this issue. This comes from Galatians chapter 6, verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. So, But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. 
So if you sow to the flesh, you increase the corruption, you increase the likelihood that you will produce works of the flesh. Um, you actually make the flesh stronger. Uh, the flesh will always be oriented towards sin um, on this side of heaven until we receive our glorified bodies. Um, but at, in the here and now, our flesh will always be oriented towards sin. So you actually, by increasing, sowing to the flesh, you make the flesh stronger in relation to sin. Okay. So if you sow to the Spirit, you shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so obviously we want to sow to the Spirit uh, rather than sowing to the flesh. But this is an active process, um, and the whole idea that we can do something to increase the propensity of the flesh towards sin and toward corruption, uh, which ultimately is to decrease self-control rather than increase self-control. Remember that the Holy Spirit, as we yield to the Holy Spirit, we will increase in self-control. Uh, so, so keep that in mind here because that will be relevant. We can sow to the flesh. Now let's talk about what kinds of things that we do. And this is where it starts to get practical when I, when I work with people and I present to them this sort of whole fourfold grid of the world, the flesh, the devil, and the soul and spirit, the soul spirit. So, um, what are the sources of flesh corruption? And uh, let's begin to look at these. Poor sleep and rest habits. God has designed us that we need sleep. And we need a certain amount of sleep to function very well. I'm kind of struggling today because for the last two nights I haven't slept enough. Uh, so my neurons aren't quite firing as well as they, they could be today. But uh, and God has also designed us in such a way that we need to keep a Sabbath. But think about our culture. And our culture is such that we really don't know how to rest. We've lost that whole idea of Sabbath keeping. Not in a legalistic sense, but in the sense of being restored and the sense of finding that rest and that restoration. Uh, so, uh, in fact, people who work third shift are five times more likely to be depressed, and they are three times more likely to attempt suicide. So rest and sleep is very significant for us. We need sleep. People who... Um, They've actually done studies where they have interrupted the sleep cycles of people uh, for extended periods of time. And after about six or seven days of that, people will actually begin hallucinating. Um, so to not get the sleep and the rest that you need, you actually decrease your ability to self-control. You will make the flesh stronger it will tend toward being uninhibited rather than inhibited. So uh, you make the flesh stronger. That's one way that we can sow to the flesh rather than to the spirit. And so when I work with people, one of the things that I frequently ask is uh, how much on average are you sleeping per night? I think it is um, 
not coincidental that many, both depression and many of the anxiety disorders, we frequently see insomnia as a significant elements of that. And we're even beginning to think now that uh, sometimes, in, in some cases of severe depression, that uh, actually the insomnia may be primary and it may be what is producing the depression itself rather than the depression producing the insomnia. So, very essential that we get the sleep and the rest that we need. God has designed us to function that way. So, when you work with people, you need to address those kinds of things. Um, so, um, also, the SAD diet, the standard American diet, more and more research is actually coming out on this now, and there's an interesting... Uh, Field, uh, if you maybe you learned in college or high school that basically our nervous system has two divisions. You have the central uh, division, the central nervous system, which is composed of the brain and uh, the um, the spinal column, um, and the peripheral nervous system, which with everything else, it uh, operates our motor functions and our sensory neurons and that sort of thing. Actually, we have three. We have the central nervous system, we have the peripheral nervous system, and we have what's being now called the enteric nervous system, the ENS. And what we have now discovered is that there is a very complex web of neurons in our gut that uh, we can actually, it's connected by a system of other neurons called the vagus nerve system, V-A-G-U-S, and it connects to our brains, and uh, we can cut that vagus nerve system, and that enteric nervous system will operate independently of the brain. Um, and it, uh, it, it, that's actually very interesting. Um, and in fact, in many ways, we're now beginning to discover that that is very much related to our sense of emotional, um, our, our emotional well-being. And... Uh, uh, I think this has some real correspondence with with uh, with scripture. Uh, you think of um, um, in the old King James, uh, one of the chief characteristics, um, the chief um, contrast between Christ and the Pharisees in the book of Mark. Um, they are pictured as hard-hearted, and Christ is portrayed always as being. In the old King James, it says he was moved in his bowels with compassion, and that's what the the word in Greek literally means is that this becomes, the, the, they thought of this as the seed of the emotions. Um, most of your antidepressants actually operate on a chemical that's called serotonin, your SSRIs. And uh, what it does is it makes it more available. It doesn't produce more. It just makes more available uh, for our neurons and our brains to operate. And, um, however... There is only, in terms of our serotonin, only 1% of our serotonin is in the brain. There's very, very little uh, serotonin in the brain. The other 99% the other is right here in our gut. And that's why people who go on antidepressants, probably the most common side effect is some type of, of stomach problem. If you give them a little, they will often develop diarrhea because it will increase the motility, the movement of food through the intestinal system. If you give them a lot, they'll 
they get constipation because it'll actually decrease the movement of food through the intestinal system. So the standard American diet is such that it is very high in carbohydrates and even the proteins that we get tend to be of more of a poor quality uh, and we tend to uh, also consume things such as trans fatty acids that cause uh, damage in our cells, that cause cellular damage. Um, and so it's not good for us and it's not effective, uh, it's not good for effective brain functioning. Um, Daniel Amon's book, Change Your Brain, Change Your Life, um, he again um, divides the brain up into five different systems and if you're having some difficulty in any of those five systems, he gives a diet that you can follow that will help actually to increase the brain effectiveness to deal with that issue. Uh, and I'll talk more about that uh, in, in a minute here. But the standard American diet is actually very poor. Uh, Michael Jacobson, who also presents uh, here for IBC, uh, has written in his book, The Word on Health, and about uh, how the diet is such is so essential to our sense of well-being. Uh, and if we're not getting the basic nutrients that our bodies need to convert uh, into other um, compounds, into other substances, into particularly these neurochemicals, uh, our bodies and our brains are not going to work very effectively. Uh, so standard American diet is really sad. Um, so that's one way that um, we can uh, increase the corruption of, of our flesh. And I'm beginning now to work with people a little bit in this area more and more as I learn about it. In fact, I'm looking for a good physician uh, in Fort Wayne to, uh, to kind of work with me on this. And there's one that would be excellent. He's a believer. He's also a DO, uh, a doctor of osteopathy rather than an MD. And they tend to consider nutritional concerns more than a typical MD. Um, but uh, another counseling center has contracted with him, and so he's not taking any new patients. So I'm going to have to keep looking. So um, Allergens would be another one. Oops. I jumped ahead. Oh, psychoactive substances. I'm sorry. I jumped ahead. Um, Dr. Amon has written about this in his book, Change Your Brain, Change Your Life. But actually, if you go on his website, it's called brainplace.com. You will see actual functional brain scans of people uh, who, uh, for example, consume alcohol on a regular basis. So people who uh, may be alcoholic or at least abusing alcohol as well as other things. And what you see is you begin to see holes in the functioning of their brains. Um, and alcohol is a poison. That's the reason that it has the effect on us that it does. Um, and alcohol will affect, it affects first that prefrontal cortex area of the brain, which is the area of the brain that mediates self-control, that helps us to inhibit um, all the other activity in the brain. So that's why when people are drunk, they're pretty stupid. Well, and if you want to decrease your IQ pretty quickly, keep drinking, because it'll happen. Um, and when people die of alcohol um, poisoning, now not the lead and the other stuff in the alcohol, but when people actually die of alcohol um, poisoning, 
what happens is that they have consumed so much alcohol and it has affected their brains to such a degree that the lower parts of the brain that govern our heart rate and our heartbeats and our respiratory rate, um, they become anesthetized. And literally what happens is that people, their heart stops beating because they have anesthetized that part of the brain. And uh, you know, people die. I mean, right now, one of the biggest issues that most many uh, college campuses uh, face is this issue of binge drinking among the students. Thank God that we have uh, covenants and if students are caught drinking at all on our campus, they're gone. We just don't allow it on our campus. Or off our campus. They're caught in any place. So, um, the addiction right now, the, the fastest rising addiction right now is caffeine addiction. Um, I worked with a gal a few years ago uh, she had lots of things going on, a number of different diagnoses, but she was having panic attacks. Even at night, she would wake up with panic attacks. And uh, one of the questions I routinely ask when people come in is, how much caffeine are you consuming a day? And uh, she was drinking three whole pots of caffeinated coffee a day. Three whole pots. And when she wasn't drinking coffee, she would have a Diet Coke in her hand. Took us three months. We weaned her off of caffeine. Uh, she had a terrible time of it, but we finally got her weaned off of caffeine, and the panic attacks went away. Now she had lots of other stuff to deal with, but the panic attacks went away. So that's another way that we anything that affects uh, significantly affects your brain functioning is going to. Uh, to actually sow to the flesh. It will make the flesh stronger in relation to sin um, uh, rather than uh, help you to be able to submit to the Spirit in that. So nicotine, any other substances uh, will, will do that for us. Um, lifestyle concerns, and this is beginning to be um, a big one. In fact, over the last about six or seven years, what I have noticed in working with marriages and working with child problems, child behavior problems, is that I routinely have to ask now about lifestyle concerns. Um, particularly, well, one is that people often leave, uh, live sedentary lifestyles. I'm as guilty as anybody else, so, you know, let's say when you point the finger, you got four important back, and that's the case with me. In this one, uh, and if I'm not teaching in class, I'm often sitting at my desk doing something. So, but you think about actually, I think um, the the curse where Adam has to work by the sweat of his brow was uh, sort of a, a a sneaky blessing on God's part, um, because when we think about our cultures. And how we have progressed in our society from an agrarian society where we did have to work hard. And so exercise and, and stressing our bodies in a very intentional way was a part of our lifestyle. To now the industrial, to now even the information society where we are more sedentary. We know that from mild to moderate depression, for example, we can actually measure the byproducts of serotonin. Um, one of those chemicals in our brains that help our brains to work well, and that we can get uh, as much of an increase 
in serotonin levels in our brains by getting a person to do exercise, to walk 30 minutes a day, five days a week, as we can by giving them an antidepressant. That's from mild to moderate depression. Uh, not, not true in severe depression. But So uh, getting people to just do some basic self-care uh, in that uh, can be extremely helpful. If you're working with people who are depressed, one of the things that I encourage you to do is to get them started exercising regularly. And it doesn't have to be strenuous exercise. It can just be walking for 30 minutes a day. But get them to do that. Um, the other issue in the lifestyle concerns, and this is what I've begun noticing over the last seven, seven years or so, is that when working with marital problems and family problems, particularly child behavior problems, I routinely ask now, give me a typical weekly schedule for your family. What is happening, we're finding, and I was just talking about this with a child therapist just yesterday, um, what is happening now is that families are becoming over-scheduled. Johnny's got pra baseball practice, uh, Sally's got ballet practice, and they're involved in all these extracurricular activities, and mom's going here, and dad's going there, and do you know that on average... The average couple spends only 30 minutes, in, I mean, three minutes in meaningful conversation a day. That's something more than just, hi, how are you doing, how'd your day go? Three minutes per day in meaningful conversation. And uh, we are over-scheduling uh, in our families. So you have to address lifestyle concerns. And the more frenetic your life is, the stronger you make the flesh in relation towards sin. We are over-exhausted, over-extended, over-scheduled in our culture. And uh, it is wreaking its havoc on our families. Um, and there is tremendous pressure. I mean, parents feel that if they don't allow their children to participate in all those extracurricular activities, that they're somehow depriving their kids. And they will sometimes receive that message from other people as well. So, yes, sir. Um, it it certainly can. It doesn't allow for you to, you know, depending on what the noise is, but it 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 may increase physiological arousal. Um, so it certainly can. Yes, we have certainly entertained ourselves to death too. Um, another uh, would be neurotoxins. There we go. Um, this is something I'm beginning to uh, find out about more and more. Um, our The environment in our intestines is a pretty fragile environment. And uh, when working right, there's a good balance of good bacteria versus bad bacteria and other substances in the body, and uh, what happens often because of different conditions, uh, often because of, of uh, the use of antibiotics. Antibiotics typically aren't specific, and so uh, antibiotics will often kill off 
good bacteria as well as bad bacteria, and you get an imbalance in our intestines. And so what happens is this is a condition that's called dysbiosis. Um, and uh, what happens then is you get an overgrowth of the bad bacteria, and uh, it won't help us to... it prevents the breakdown, actually, of the nutrients that we need to convert into other needed substances to help our bodies to work well. Uh, and particularly difficult is when you have yeast overgrowth in your intestines. And this will produce uh, yeast, particularly a type of yeast that's called candida albicans, um, will produce what are called mycotoxins. And mycotoxins... Uh, actually can be pretty nasty for us. They will pass the blood-brain barrier in our brains, and they will cause some pretty significant problems in that. In fact, uh, some researchers are beginning to think now that some forms of bipolar disorder are probably related to yeast overgrowth in our intestines. Uh, these mycotoxins that are affecting our brains. Now, not all, but, but some. Um, so uh, you can get problems there. So again, the necessity of having a good diet uh, and of restoring our health uh, and being wise about that. And I would refer you to some of those resources there. Uh, other neurotoxins are heavy metals. Uh, and these affect our brain functioning. Uh, they are very toxic to the cells in our brain. Uh, and in fact, uh, up in Fort Wayne where we live, northeast Indiana has the highest levels of both lead and mercury in the nation in the soil. Um, part of that, there are some forms of mercury that are found naturally in the soil, but a significant part of that is because where we live in Fort Wayne, you have a lot of industry right along the lakes there, the lake, around South Bend and Gary, Indiana, and we get storm systems that move through, the winds that pick up the pollution, and that begin to dump that right in, in other areas uh, of northeast Indiana. So we, a few years ago, about three or four years ago, they actually did a study in Fort Wayne, and they found that within certain zip codes in Fort Wayne that children were coming down more and more with lead poisoning and other metal poisoning. And it, was, it causes problems in terms of good brain development. And so uh, part of it is from, for example, lead-based paint creates a dust and children playing around the house get that dust and they put their fingers in their mouths. But most of the lead and other metals that they ingest actually comes from playing in the soil and then they put their fingers in their mouths and... That's where it, it comes from. And so uh, doctors are having to address this, and, and uh, there's a big information campaign, and uh, there were even grants to help people to pay to paint over some of the lead-based paint and, and other sorts of things and to have kids tested uh, for that. So these can be pretty toxic. Um, there are some who think that, for example, uh, I have, and probably many of you have, silver amalgam fillings in your mouths. And uh, that has mercury in it. Mercury is highly toxic to us. Um, the research isn't conclusive on this. Some think that actually over time, that bits and pieces of that break off 
and can cause problems. Um, others think, uh, other research says no, that it really doesn't, and so it's inconclusive at this time, but it's certainly suggestive. Uh, so there could be sometimes neurotoxins uh, that are um, that result in, in problems uh, for us. And it will again uh, affect our brain development, which will affect um, how we are able to self-control. Another one, and this is not widely known, is here we go, electromagnetic fields, and even weak electromagnetic fields. How many of you have an alarm clock? Probably all of us. Is it within three feet of your bed? If it's within three feet of the, your bed, move it. In fact, it's one of the first things that, that I ask people um, when I work with them, particularly if um, they are having sleep disturbances, um, if they are having any type of um, hallucinations, whether all, uh, particularly visual hallucinations, but sometimes even auditory hallucinations, um, is do they have an alarm clock? Uh, and do you keep it by your bed? Is it within three feet of your head? If it's within three feet of your head, you need to move it. Uh, even weak electromagnetic fields uh, can actually induce changes in the brain uh, and will uh, disrupt, uh, even disrupt sleep patterns uh, within the brain. So when I work with people, I actually have them, if they do, I have them to move their alarm clock. So. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the research is inconclusive on that, but uh, there has been, in fact, if you want to look up some of the research by Persinger, I would tell you to use discernment there because not only is he a naturalist in terms of his worldview, but he's also an ardent atheist and anti-Christian. It doesn't discount his research, but uh, he has shown that even weak magnetic electric fields, remember I said the wand? that will stimulate certain parts of the brain, well, that's an electromagnetic one. And actually, electromagnetic fields will cross through the skull and will uh, stimulate parts of the brain. So you, you have to be cautious there. And I've just started, I asked that question, I had people to move, move that alarm clock. So, yes, ma'am. Um, if it's battery, the wind-up, obviously, there's no electromagnetic field. But if, it's, if you plug it in, they're pretty much all the same. So the other thing to think about it also is um, like for adolescents, headphones on all the time. And particularly if they go to sleep with them on, um, and sometimes they fall asleep with them on, well, you know, for a little while that probably won't, won't do anything. But if they're consistently going to sleep with the headphones on, that will actually cause changes uh, in brain function. So you, you want to caution people about that. Yes, ma'am. Well, the research is inconclusive on that. You know, there has been some research that uh, pointed to causing brain tumors, um, but other research that says, no, it doesn't cause brain tumors. Uh, but, you know, in Europe, they tend to be more sensitive and cautious about these kinds of things. And um, they have actually cautioned people away from heavy use of cell phones. Yeah. 
Uh, I think if you're if you're using it, you know, uh, maybe just a couple of times a day, it's probably not hurting it. But like you know, people walk around sometimes with their ear glued to it all the time. So I one, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I really don't know. If you charge them right beside your bed, it's producing an electromagnetic field. Move it. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. The literal earbud. Um, the little earbuds don't produce as large of a magnetic field as the main speaker in the phone would. So it might be better. So. Okay. Um, uh, other physiological conditions, uh, these can often mimic sometimes uh, some of the mental disorders. Uh, in fact, often thyroid problems are actually misdiagnosed as psychological disorders. Um, and I've had uh, a couple of cases, in fact I worked with a case a few years ago it was an older couple. They weren't married, but she was divorced. And they had been dating, and uh, they were thinking about getting married. And but there were just problems in the relationship. Uh, he, she thought he was being hypersensitive, um, and uh, we kept working at things, and things didn't seem to be improving. And uh, um, so she decided to call it off, and he continued to come in for counseling because he said, you know, regardless of whether. Um, I get married or not, I want to deal with my stuff. And I said, that's a good thing. So we continued to work. And I just had this nagging feeling because we, he just continued to be, um, he was easily offended um, and um, continued to be sort of irritable and cranky and a chronic mood that way. And um, I, I, I finally said, you know, look, if I want to continue with you, but I'll have to insist that you need to go get a complete physical. Um, and get, make sure you get your thyroid panels done. Uh, and uh, he did, and sure enough, he had hypothyroidism, underfunctioning thyroid. That will significantly affect your mood. Um, and in fact, it's often misdiagnosed as depression. Um, and in fact, when also there are other conditions, uh, when you have hyperthyroidism, particularly when there are vacillations in the levels of the thyroid hormones, uh, in hyperthyroidism, hyperthyroidism, that's an overfunctioning thyroid, uh, sometimes that is misdiagnosed as bipolar disorder, uh, bipolar disorder 2, in fact. Um, so, and we're seeing an increase in rates of the diagnoses of thyroid problems. Uh, and in fact, if you, so I encourage people to frequently to make sure if you haven't had a medical, complete medical exam in a while, with a complete blood checkup, go get it done. Make sure you do your, your T1 through 4 thyroid panels as well as a TSH panel uh, as well. Um, and so to, to get that done. Diabetes, undiagnosed diabetes, uh, will often mimic um, depression uh, and even sometimes dementia uh, as well. Yes, ma'am. Well, when I send them, I said, make sure that you get your T1 through 4 panels and a TSH. 
uh, I usually just send them to their family physician. Um, and most, if they have decent insurance, most of, the, most of the time the insurance company generally will pay for an annual exam uh, with a complete blood check test. Ah, okay. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, it's an overactive bipolar disorder, too. Um, there are other infectious diseases. We don't need to go into those, but there are other physiological conditions that can mimic, um, mimic um, uh, psychological conditions. I didn't mention the allergens. I, I must have left that one off there, but let me go back and mention that. It's on your sheet. Uh, I just read about a case recently um, in, uh, where a person was experiencing uh, visual and auditory hallucinations, and a physician began to work with the person and actually was able to trace it down to a severe uh, allergy to wheat products. Um, and uh, more and more, I've got a, a good friend who is a neuropsychologist, and he specializes in working with people, adults, who have ADD, ADHD. And uh, what he says is that about 30 to 40 percent of the time, it's because of some type of allergy. And he can work with them in their diet uh, and actually address that issue from a diet standpoint. So, uh, also mold, uh, particularly a particular type of black mold uh, in our homes, produces a gas that is highly toxic to us and will cause some significant problems. Um, so uh, that's another allergen that that, and in fact, uh, what I would tell you is this: that um, there are some who think that more and more that the increase that we are seeing in allergic reactions to different substances, again, we can trace back to, um, we know, for example, that, uh, in fact, Dr. Mike uh, Jacobson uh, has uh, some good material on this on his website, if you go to his website, Provident Medical Institute. Um, and uh, uh, what he, he even gives his own experience um, where all of a sudden his allergies started getting worse, and what he discovered is that he had an overgrowth of candida yeast, uh, and uh, he went on a, a diet to, uh, to address that, and he was able to reduce his allergies to the point where he didn't have to take any medication for them whatsoever. So, so yes. Hmm. But there are lots of substances that really can cause this problem. So, yes, ma'am. Well, I've just actually started kind of uh, looking at this myself, and I don't have any means to test for allergens, but what I'm doing is more and more referring people back to physicians to address this. I'm actually looking for a physician that I can work with pretty closely on this. I haven't been able to fi find one yet, but, um, but I would say it would not be an impossibility. So, yeah. Okay, um, medications. There are some medications that can cause problems. Any of your psychiatric medications, particularly, for example, the SSRIs, um, 
right now there's a big warning that um, we've actually, no surprise, been overusing these and overextending their use. But uh, in children, they will actually induce suicidal thoughts uh, sometimes. And so they're being very cautious now about using your antidepressant medications in children and adolescents. Uh, what they're also not telling you yet is that, that this is sometimes also true in adults. Um, and we know as professional counselors that um, if a person is uh, put on the anti, particularly the SSRIs, the antidepressant medications, that we need to watch them very carefully for suicidal thoughts. Um, so um, that, and, and you can have all kind of reactions. Uh, even some of the, particularly the, the, um, the anti, uh, the neuroleptics, which are used to treat uh, epilepsy, um, they're also using these for a lot of uh, psychological conditions like uh, bipolar disorder. Um, and uh, some of the uh, antipsychotics, um, but you can actually, what, what actually sometimes will happen, I've seen this happen in the psych hospital, is that a person will go into paralysis, a temporary paralysis, uh, as a result of that. Even. So it'll lock them up, uh, and they have to give other medication to jumpstart their movement back again. So, yes, ma'am. Well, the, the, SSR, the SSRIs in general are less dangerous than the older antidepressants. Um, they tend to have fewer side effects and uh, fewer problems in mixing those with other medications. Um, but there is no absolutely safe medication. I don't care what it is. Um, and uh, sometimes I refer people uh, for medication. We'll talk about that in a minute. But um, So I'm not averse to medication. I do think we overuse it. So, um, sometimes, uh, particularly the older classes of your high blood pressure medications can induce depression depressive-like symptoms, um, and there are many other common medications. People often have reactions to them, and uh, it, it can cause problems. So if you're working with a case and things just aren't improving, you know, you need to think about some of these things. Uh, don't be hesitant to refer them back to their physicians and just to, to do a medical review um, or to do a, a, a complete physical with a complete blood checkup, uh, these kinds of things. Uh, Again, we're not just soul and spirit, we're also body, um, and we're also flesh. Uh, so, But any of these conditions will actually reap more corruption in our flesh. Uh, so probably the most common way we've already talked about is this neural programming, where just in terms of the physiological condition through that cultural and environmental programming that takes place, uh, either through any number of different types of experiences. And this is just the stimulus response. This is the way that our brain circuits get organized. And so if you train yourself in unrighteousness, the more you train yourself in that direction, the more your brain gets organized that way, the, the stronger the pathway in your brain, the more likely you are to follow that route. The harder it is to create a different pathway, to break out of that rut and to create a new, new pathway. And this can come... Uh, through prevailing experiences, just experiences that happen over time. You know, if you grew up in a home uh, where your dad told you you were worthless and no good, and that he regrets the day that you were born, 
It won't take too many times, and that's going to get programmed into not only your way of thinking, but that your brain will get organized to follow that line of thinking. Um, so it could be prevailing experiences, that training and unrighteousness, uh, as we continue to commit sins, um, the works of the flesh, uh, you increase your propensity to continue to do that. Um, and one, actually, what will often be one thing that will create an instantaneous connections in our brain is trauma. And trauma by its very nature means it's a threat to our survival and it will create instantaneous pathways in our brains that are, are quite strong. Um, and so it can be one traumatic experience or a traumatic experience that is sustained over time. But it only takes one to create that connection. So, so those are every, all of that will actually lead toward being less self-controlled um, and make it more difficult for us to yield to the Spirit and to pursue spiritual maturity. Um, so some of that is rather easily addressed. You can get people to start regular habits of sleep, to take a, be sure to take a Sabbath rest. Um, you can work with people sometimes to address lifestyle concerns and those kinds of things. Some of that is actually going to take more, uh, uh, more professional, uh, more um, biological expertise to begin to address, like the neurotoxins and things like that. Usually that involves some form of chelation therapy uh, or something like that. So, but again, if you're working with people and you've taken them through the steps, they understand their identity in Christ, they know what it means to renew their minds and take their thoughts captive and walk in the Spirit, um, but there's just something more that's not being addressed, and it's not an issue of dissociation, um, then you need to start thinking about maybe there's something biological going on here, uh, and don't hesitate to refer people to, um, to physicians. Uh, and, you know, I mean, that's always a mixed bag sometimes. Well, I wouldn't say always, but sometimes a mixed bag. But... Um, I try to find, I'm trying to find a Christian physician who understands the relationship between uh, body and soul and spirit who will work with me on some of this. But uh, we're going to continue. I think you have to um, try to uh, create some dialogue with our Christian medical doctors uh, to work with this. Just like my training, in some ways, oriented me toward a Christian secularism, Often so does theirs. Uh, and there's a struggle in that for them. So that's why I applaud people like Dr. Mike Jacobson. Jacobson. So, uh, by the way, I highly recommend his book, The Biblical Guide to Alternative Medicine, that he wrote with Neil Anderson, and his book, The Word on Health, uh, as well. It's out of print. Yeah, you might have to do. Um, eBay search or something like that to, to get it. Uh, Amazon. Uh, I would uh, also highly recommend if, if you if you like what you're hearing in terms of this brain stuff and you want to 
learn more about it. Uh, I would start with Jim Wilder's uh, material out here on Joy Bonds, um, his, his tapes, uh, and then perhaps move to Recovering from Sexual Addictions. Um, and uh, I, it's excellent stuff, good stuff. Uh, and certainly he, he goes into even more detail than I, than I do. So uh, I would highly recommend that. I think it's out here on the table. Is it not? Yeah, go with Joy Bonds first. That'll give you the background then for the other. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about how do we begin to apply this now. I'm not a doctor, so I can't do the chelation therapy and the medications and, and all that, but I can address some things. Well, um, we want to talk about how to soothe the flesh uh, versus so to the flesh. Um, one of the things is uh, beginning to work with people a little bit on restoring just physical health um, and, and looking at their diets. And particularly in a college environment where I work, um, even though my practice isn't with college students, I also, you know, if you're a, a faculty member uh, at a college, you're, you're always working with college students, not just on academic stuff, but a lot of personal stuff as well. So, you know, that's one of the questions I, I, I always ask. You know, tell me, what do you typically eat? Um, and uh, what I'm doing more and more is trying to reorient people. What we really need is a diet that is higher in healthy proteins, um, particularly things such as uh, fish, uh, salmon, um, tuna, and others. Now, you have to watch it with tuna because they are finding high levels of mercury in tuna. Uh, in fact, they're telling pregnant women to not eat tuna at all. Uh, most of your canned tuna uh, is usually pretty good. If you're eating tuna steaks, those tend to have the higher levels of, of mercury in them. But uh, they, these have healthy oils that are necessary for good functioning. Um, what I'm also doing right now, particularly for people who are struggling with depression, is that I recommend that they take um, your uh, omega-3 capsules, uh, 1,000 milligrams three times a day. Um, and uh, that's necessary for good functioning. Uh, one of the things that it does is it helps to restore the mucus lining in our intestines, but it also helps in terms of the uh, functions of our, of our neurons. Uh, so, so we need... Diets that are higher in healthy proteins, lower in carbohydrates, higher in enzymes. Enzymes are what your body uses to actually break down the nutrients in your foods. Once you cook a food, whether that be a vegetable, a piece of meat, or anything else, it has no enzymes in it whatsoever. Enzymes are only found in raw foods or fermented foods. And so I tell people at least once a day, you need to be eating some raw vegetables and fruit um, to get up your enzymes. You can take supplements to, to help do that. Supplement with a good vitamin, the omega-3 oils, and what we call probiotics. Um, these are things that are necessary, again, for good intestinal functioning. Uh, and I would point you to uh, Jacobson and Rubin and Watson and Smith. Again, read, read uh, particularly uh, Watson and Smith with 
discernment. Uh, they are not Christian authors, um, but uh, they recommend some things in there that I would not agree with. But uh, um, otherwise, it's good, pretty good stuff. Um, in the case of severe dysbiosis, this imbalance uh, within the intestinal system, it actually might be necessary to uh, have an even more restrictive diet to restore that balance. In some cases, uh, they recommend. So, and again, because of this enteric nervous system that we have, that's connected to our brains by this vagus nerve system, this complex, uh, a healthy diet is as essential for our brain as it, as it is for the rest of our body. Um, and uh, actually they're using now one of the alternative treatments for depression is a vagus nerve stimulator, um, which is actually, it works a little bit like a pacemaker, except it connects to the vagus nerve and stimulates the vagus nerve. And uh, actually they have shown it to be pretty effective uh, in the treatment of uh, severe depression. So, um, but again, uh, we, we go back, if you think of your gut as the foundation of your health, um, you, that will give that sense of priority then to, to how, what we eat, how we eat, and just intestinal health in general. I mean, that's where your physical health, that's, that really is the foundation of your physical health. That's where all of your nutrients and everything that your body needs comes from, except for air. So... Um, Gershon, Michael Gershon, who's referenced there, has written a book called The Second Brain. This is what they're referring to now. Uh, that's how they're referring to this, um, this enteric nervous system because it operates completely independent of the main brain up here, the first brain, the central nervous system. Um, and uh, some very interesting research coming out on that now. Um, get people to rest. I can't stress that enough. Give priority to sleep. Go to sleep at a consistent time. Wake up at a consistent time. Um, move alarm clocks away from the bed. Um, have room darkening curtains or shades. Um, uh, try to uh, decrease the amount of noise and stimulation in the room, but get people to rest. Um, and I can't stress that enough. Um, keep the Sabbath. Not just in, in terms of sleeping at night, but, but having a good Sabbath uh, and finding that uh, ability to rest on the Sabbath. Um, you know, and if they're, they're watching the football game and getting physiological aroused, physiologically aroused all the time, you've got to wonder how much, how restful that is to, to our bodies. And I know that might be heresy down here, but, uh, you know, you've got you to gotta wonder sometimes. Yes, sir. Earplugs? Um, yes. When I'm on the road, I bring earplugs. I sure do. Yeah. There, I've stayed in many hotels, and I wished I didn't have to hear what was going on in the next in the next room. You know, so I've learned to bring earplugs. So. White noise. Uh, I think those can be effective for many people. Uh, and would uh, recommend that. Um, sometimes I like to have a fan on just for some white noise. Um, I don't do it during the winter. We have pretty cold winters up in Indiana. so. Um, but uh, 
during the summer months, I particularly like to have a fan on. Uh, even though we have central AC, I just like to have a fan on just for the noise. Um, so. Oh, yeah. Um, I, and I would say that this may even require lifestyle changes with some people. Um, well, I'll present the case in a minute, but you'll see that that had to happen with the case, which is a composite case. It's about three or four actual cases that I worked with. Um, but uh, sometimes it will require lifestyle changes. Um, exercise. Again, get people to to stress their bodies in an intentional way, a moderate amount of stress, um, exercising their bodies. And our bodies are designed to work best that way, work more effectively that way. Uh, and that should be a regular part. Actually, I do that pretty much uh, for almost all individual problems that I work with, but uh, also to some degree even to, with um, many of the marital problems that I work with. Um, it's a, a good good to use that for effective stress management. Um, and consistent exercise can, again, it can increase the function of neurochemicals to a level similar to that of most antidepressant medications for mild to moderate depression. So um, just doing exercise, walking 30 minutes a day, five days a week. Sometimes I think medications are necessary. I am not anti-medication. Now, what I say, my general rule is this because I'm asked this all the time. It's no sin to take a pill. The sin is to fail to address any personal and spiritual conflicts that may be at the root of the problem. The sin is not in taking the pill. This, the sin is in the failure to address uh, any uh, soul-spirit uh, issues that may be at the root of the problem. Um, the difficulty is when people accept the biological explanation as the full and only explanation for something. And I, I, when I refer people, I um, we talk about that, and I caution them away from that. So there are some disorders, for example, bipolar disorder 1, that I think will require medication. So, by the way, in the field of psychiatry, which is the medical aspect of working with mental disorders, a short-term trial of medication is still two to four years. That's short-term trial. Uh, it may take four to six months for the body to even work up to full blood levels on some medications. So, so we're, we're, we can talk, it can be what seems to us like an extended period of time. The question is, have I dealt with cases where Depression had only a physical cause and no other, no other root causes. I cannot think of any. Um, if, if so, I can't think of any offhand, but I would imagine it would be a misdiagnosis uh, of a physiological condition um, in those cases. And it was a true clinical depression. Um, now, I've dealt with many cases that I didn't refer for medication because there was also such a severe um, physiological problem. Well, mescaline and LSD, 
uh, are hallucinogenics. Um, and uh, we are more and more moving away from... Uh, yes, um, the question is, how can we be sure... He said that you're taught that uh, some of the substances like mescaline and LSD open people up to demonization. How can we be sure that the psychiatric medications don't do the same? We are more and more moving away from, I say we, but the psychiatric field is moving away from the use of narcotics. Um, and um, I, they don't, as far as I know, they don't use any hallucinogenic substances um, at all. And what you see actually uh, is that what does open people up to demonization are the more hallucinogenic substances. But even the narcotics, they're moving away from those um, to substances that have less uh, side effects and uh, are more targeted to specific areas of the brain. So um, I would have concerns if we were using hallucinogenics um, but I don't know of any psychiatrist that uses any hallucinogenics. So. No. Yeah. They can. They can. So, uh, and you do have to be cautious with that. You do. Um, again, it's no sin to take a pill. The sin, the sin is the failing to address uh, what may be at, what may be the root issues. So, yes, ma'am. Five HTP. The question is, what do I think about five HTP? Five HTP is actually what the body converts to serotonin. Uh, there are some. My friend, who's a neuropsychologist, he will sometimes have people to buy that. You can actually buy that off the shelf in most of the health food stores. Um, and he will actually have people to, to buy that uh, in some cases and to use that very carefully. Um, I have not done that yet because you can actually also get some pretty nasty side effects if you don't use that right. If you don't use that well. Um, so, but it certainly makes sense that sometimes, particularly for serotonin, um, that if there's a serotonin problem, that's one of the chemicals in our brain, um, that five, taking 5-HTP can increase the availability of that. Um, you know, there was one study that came out about a year ago that actually said that using the omega-3 oil, the fish oil capsules, that for mild, again, mild to moderate depression, we can get an equivalent response uh, in terms of the physiologic side of the depression, uh, again, by exercise, but also using the omega-3 oil. No. no. Yes, ma'am. Um, in some studies, she asked about St. John's wort. In some studies, that has been shown to be helpful for, again, mild to moderate depression. But the thing with St. John's wort is it has so it has 
it can have really bad interactions with other medications. And so uh, I have not used St. John's wort. No. no. Otherwise, if you ate salmon, you know, a, a lot of people ate salmon, they would have bad reactions. Salmon has high. Actually, the food that has the highest uh, omega oils, walnuts. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Consumer Reports, she, she asked if there is there a concern about uh, being cautious, cautious which omega 3s uh, pills that you use, concern over mercury poisoning. Uh, Consumer Reports did a study a couple years ago comparing the quality of the omega 3 capsules, uh, a number of very popular brands, and, and uh, looked at that issue. And what they concluded is that, by and large, there was no concern. Um, my wife and I take them. Uh, we simply buy ours from Sam's. So we can buy a big big bottle. What I would encourage you to do, and, and we're going to shift to this the next time we have to buy some, is to buy the enteric-coated omega-3 oil capsules. Uh, because, that, because it's coated, it will actually um, survive the stomach acids and then we'll break down in the intestines, where again we have this enteric nervous, the enteric nervous system in the intestines. So it will likely be more effective uh, in, in using it that way. Okay, ah, we got to move. Okay, All right. Practical ways, uh, those practical ways that you can do. So how do we? It's not just an issue of soothing the flesh, but but how do we sow to the Spirit? Well, those are the things that, a lot of the things that you have learned in these classes. Um, and I haven't kept up with my slide here, so let me move quickly ahead. Um, for example, taking our thoughts captive. And I find this to be absolutely critical when working with people, particularly at that moment of temptation, or at that moment when something in the environment stimulate, stimulates a certain line of thinking that has that has been deceptive, and they have to learn. That's that moment by moment basis um, of learning to think in truth um, and take those thoughts captive. And that means we have to become vigilant about what we're thinking. Most people don't know what they're thinking. Uh, it's become so automatic they don't realize they're thinking what they're thinking. Truthfully, um, and. Uh, I work with people, and I say, I'm wondering if you're thinking this in that situation. And they go, no, I'm not thinking that. And then the situation will happen over the weekend. I said, what were you thinking? I was thinking da-da-da-da-da-da. Oh, exactly what I said last week. Um, and so learning to take our thoughts captive uh, at that, that particular moment. Um, renewing our minds. This is an overall program of bathing our minds in truth. So... I think perhaps the best way of renewing our minds uh, is scripture memory. Memorizing scripture. Uh, and particularly scriptures in areas where they may be struggling. And I will have them to identify scriptures in those areas uh, particularly. Remember the job of the Holy Spirit is to bring to mind what Jesus has taught us. But if you don't have the input, the Holy Spirit can't bring up the output. So you got to hide the word in your heart uh, so that you might not sin. So... Um, to renew our minds, so scripture memory, uh, scripture study, 
Bible reading, those kinds of things. Um, also, prayer and meditation, by that I mean biblical meditation, not the other junk, uh, but uh, uh, doing these this kinds of things. We can actually show in studies that as people begin to pray, all of a sudden their brains will become cool. That's a brain that's working efficiently. Um, and uh, that, that does indeed happen. Um, so that's another way to sow to the Spirit. Uh, we're not going to look up these passages, but you'll see in Colossians 3.16, Spirit-filled singing. Um, actually, singing is Music is processed on the right side of the brain, which is the area, again, that mediates self-control uh, and controls, does that emotional regulation for us. Um, so uh, singing is very important, uh, very, very important for us. Uh, I can't sing worth a lick. I'm a jailbird singer. I'm always behind a few bars looking for the right key, you know. So, but I love to sing, so... Uh, I sing around the house and do those sorts of things. Uh, walking in the Spirit, uh, very important. We see this as the ultimate antidote to the flesh. Um, uh, to walk in the Spirit. And that means to remain under the influence and guidance of the Holy Spirit on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Particularly, uh, it also includes that process of taking our thoughts captive uh, as well. The Spirit, is, uh, John refers to, Jesus refers to, to the Spirit most often as the Spirit of Truth, uh, particularly in the Gospel of John. And so we, we really need to, to uh, bathe our minds in truth and take those thoughts captive and follow that, that guidance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, develop our identity in Christ, uh, obviously. Uh, know who we are in Christ. Um, help people to divorce their sense of identity and their sense of value from their performance. Uh, and to shift away from that. And that is so very critical for people. And that is such a struggle. And often it's a struggle when at that in that very specific situation. Um, and uh, we, you know, I, I could go for a long time into this, and there are lots of things I use to help people to do that. But one of the things I recommend is to get people to couple that with renewing their minds by getting them to do Anderson's Who I Am in Christ uh, devotional series. Uh, and to help them to begin to, to do that. Finally, also presenting our members for righteousness. I explained to people, you know what? Your brain has been organized according to sin. And again, I'm not paying attention to my slides here. Um, your brain has been organized um, to with a propensity towards sin. Um, so not only do we have to address your soul spirit issues, but we got to retrain your brain. So we need you to practice righteousness. Of course, that's a good thing to do, even, you know, over and above just retraining our brain. But the more that you do something, again, the more you change and create new circuits in your brain. Learning, by the way, learning takes place, and more, most brain changes, um, more brain changes take place when you do something at the outer edges of what you know to do already. Um, and so if you're doing something that you already know how to do very well, you won't see a lot of changes in the brain. But if you're learning a new something new, this is when you begin to see the brain really begin to reorganize itself. And we'll see new connections begin to take place. 
So help people to begin to practice righteousness. And I'll tell you, one of the most effective ways of doing this is to help them to find ministries of service to people. Really help them to find ministries of service to people. Um, in my practice, I work through my church very part-time. Most of the people that I work with um, can't afford to go anyplace else. And so they come to me uh, because I do it for free. Uh, but what I will tell people, uh, uh, not all the time, but most of the time, is that in lieu of payment, uh, since you can't pay me, um, you know, this ministry over here needs a little help doing this. Can you do this a couple hours a week? Um, and I and I get them to doing that, and that becomes a ministry of service for them, get them to practice righteousness. So, so practice righteousness. Okay, i got ten minutes to address marital time. Do I have time for my joke, Bob? Okay. You know this old Cajun fellow, Boudreaux? He was sitting around one day reading this book, and the book was called, You Can Be the Man of Your House. So he got all excited. He jumped up and went to find his wife, Marie. He finds her upstairs. He walks up to her, um, kind of like an old banner booster in the hen house, and wags his finger in her face. He says, Now listen to him, Marie. He said, I want you to know that I is the man of this house. He said, from now on, my word going to be law. He said, now tonight I want a nice supper with some of that good old gumbo. Yeah, he said, I want some of that good old French bread. He said, and after that, I want some homemade peach ice cream with some of them pralines crumble up in there. He said, then after that, you're going to draw me up a nice hot bath so I can relax. He said, and while you do that, you can wash my back and scrub my feet too. Uh, and then he said, now after that, he said, I want my robe and my nutria skin slippers awaiting for me. He said, and after all that, guess who's going to dress me in my PJs and slick back my hair with possum grease? She looked him up and down. She said, I reckon that would be Gaston, the funeral director, I guarantee. <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> how does this relate we, we've, we've heard all this good brain stuff now how does this relate we get down to the nitty and gritty of this well uh, I have given you some uh, pages I actually teach this in, in my program in counseling but this is what we call an action plan um, and this is where we help people to identify problems. It actually follows an acrostic. And if you look at the acrostic, it's I grow, uh, I-G-R-O-W. I is we're going to identify what the problem is. G is we're going to identify goals and strategies. R, what resources do you have or do you need to develop to help you to achieve this? R, what obstacles do you anticipate and how will you respond if you counter those obstacles, and then W is, what do we need to address first? So I teach that model of, of helping to work with people, um, and so this is what you have in front of you, and this is a composite case that I put together here, and uh, part of the problem is that during marital disagreements, people get worked up in terms of their physiology, and their arousal, that is, their heart's working harder, they have higher blood pressure. Um, their skin will conduct more electricity, uh, and all those kinds of things. Uh, so, and what happens is, as that 
system kicks in, uh, it's harder and harder to control the flesh. And so you're more likely to respond in the flesh than to respond in the spirit when that happens. And so it increases the likelihood of open conflict and defensive actions, particularly in males. For example, research has been done by John Gottman that shows that for males, returning back to physiological rest, that is a normal at-rest heart rate and blood pressure and all of that, uh, after defensive arousal takes three to six times longer in men than women. So men pay a much higher price for physiological arousal than women do. Therefore, what happens is men often resort to stonewalling. That is, I'm not listening to you any longer. I'm shutting down, or I may even walk out of the room and walk away to not deal with you. Um, And they will resort to stonewalling as a defensive avoidance of severe conflict arousal uh, to avoid that. So... Knowing this, then, one of the things that you have to address in cases where there are marital conflict is you've got to address this issue of the flesh. How do we control the flesh? Um, We want a flesh that is working as best as it can uh, this side of heaven. And uh, so we've got to address this issue. So what I've given you is a case study. Uh, Humorously, I've called it Jack and Jill. So uh, uh, here's Jack and Jill. Um, and the, I've given you the action plan. And what I do is I teach students. Let's look at the, uh, the case study first. Here's Jack, age 38, and Jill, age 37. They've been married now 14 years. Um, they have three children, ages 11, 9, and 6. And Jack, uh, who is a nurse, he works third shift from Thursday through Monday in the cardiac intensive care unit at the local hospital. According to Jack, he gets paid more by working weekends and third shift due to shift differential pay. Very common. Jill is a homemaker who describes her life as a frenetic race to keep up with the kids' schedules as well as her own. They both identify the problem as significant marital conflict. This has been going on for quite a while. When asked, Jill attributes the problem to their lifestyles and to Jack's sullenness. Jack thinks Jill is hypersensitive and not appreciative of his sacrifice for the family. Though the division of labor in the home is frequent, uh, no, uh, I'm sorry, I did that wrong. The division of labor of, in, in the home is a frequent source of conflict. No consistent theme exists in the conflicts. Okay? The conflicts involve yelling and screaming, including name calling. Conflicts are not resolved, but usually end when Jack walks out to go hibernate in his workshop. He's stonewalling. Both Jack and Jill are believers, though Jack rarely attends church due to his job. Jill usually attends the worship service, but not involved otherwise. The event that prompted the couple to seek counseling was that Jack shattered in anger a favored vase of Jill's during their last conflict. Jill has threatened to leave if they can't work it out in counseling. And the actual case that that part is based on, that is really what prompted Jack to come in Uh, at Jill's insistence uh, because he grew up in an abusive home and when he did that, uh, his first thought was, uh, oh my Lord, I'm just like my father. Um, And that was what he never wanted to be. So, how is the flesh at work? 
Um, look at the action plan, if you would, under identify the problem. You'll see a grid there. Analysis of WFBS. World, the flesh, the devil, uh, and soul spirit issues. And this is what I do. I teach my students to work through this. Uh, first of all, we see in terms of just the world, uh, Jill says that they are overscheduled, particularly Jill is overscheduled. For both of them, they both like oversight of finances, we found, and irresponsibly, uh, irresponsibility regarding finances that lead to Jack's job pressure and him feeling that he has to work uh, this third shift on the weekends to get the differential pay. Um, in terms of the flesh, Jack has sleep dysregulation because sometimes he's sleeping in the mornings, sometimes he's sleeping at night, sometimes he sleeps in the evenings, but he's not sleeping well anytime he's sleeping. Uh, there is irritability, anger conditioning, and a sedentary lifestyle. For Jill, she complains of being fatigued all the time. She is experiencing some, some psychosomatic conditions of stress in her body um, and uh, frequent insomnia for her as well. Uh, in terms of the devil's involvement, it's, in, it's more indirect. There's no, no demonization that I suspected in this case, uh, but there certainly is deception regarding, particularly regarding attributions of each other's motives. And what they're doing is they're making, they're attributing negative motivations for the other person's behavior. This is extremely common in couples uh, who are on the brink of divorce. Uh, we find this to be very consistent, and the research has shown that to be very consistent. They attribute negative motivations for the other person's behavior. Okay. The soul concerns, again, these negative attributions. Lack of love and respect in their communication and behaviors. An unfair division of, of, of labor. There's a lack of joy. And uh, instead of having a love bond between them, uh, fear is beginning to, to dominate here. And they have become very defensive in relation toward each other. So rather than moving toward intimacy, they are moving away from each other in a defensive position. There is unforgiveness. Uh, particularly true of uh, Jill, um, but uh, Jack also has a so some soul wounds due his, to his father's rages that he needs to deal with. Um, and if you will look over on the session map, um, what I do when I work with people is after I do the intake and we do as the same time that I do the action plan, it's usually by the second session, is that um, I will do a session map. I will sit down and map out a course uh, of counseling. Now, we frequently veer from this. This is not written in stone, but this gives me a guide. Okay? It helps me to know where I'm going, and I find that it's also very comforting to people. Uh, they like having something like that, um, and uh, having... Uh, knowing that this isn't going to take, like the old psychoanalysis, and take 8, 10, 12 years or more. You know, they, they want to know that. You, uh, you could give it to them, uh, so, but I usually don't. Uh, but they, they like to see it. I go over it with them. Um, the first session is always the intake session, and I just develop a bond with them, develop some rapport. The second session, I frequently do 
assessment. And uh, now I'm doing this in a in a professional setting. Uh, so obviously, in a pastoral setting, you could do this very differently. Uh, you wouldn't have to do it the way I do it. Uh, but uh, I want to understand their conflict pattern. So one of the things I do is get them to come in and reenact uh, a recent conflict, so I can see what the pattern is. And uh, that's that analysis of reenactment. I gave Jack a Beck depression inventory, and uh, it showed that he had a a mild level of depression. Uh, I did a conflict uh, analysis, uh, again, looking at the uh, uh, what was going on in terms of the conflict um, there uh, at home. Uh, what are the, if there are any consistent themes, uh, how does it end? Is this typical? Is the reenactment typical or is it not typical? Uh, so, and the WFDS analysis, ask specific questions. Uh, and often we'll even get those off the intake form. So, third session with this couple, I did freedom appointments. I had each an, uh, an individual uh, session with both of them to go through the steps to freedom. With Jack, I used some inner, inner healing prayer as well um, to address uh, the soul wound, uh, particularly. Uh, and I always have them to read. Prior to that, I had them to read "Victory Over the Darkness and the Bondage Breaker." give them an understanding of, of what that means. Uh, so, uh, session four, we focused in on communication. Um, I review some biblical communication principles with them, and I teach them love and respect responses. So, here's, here's something to remember. Um, the course of communication is, the, is dictated by the responder, not the initiator. It's dictated by the responder, not the initiator. So a person may just, you know, come home. They're dead tired. They're exhausted. Jack hasn't slept while in a while, and so um, Jill does something, and it irritates him, and he says something that he should. Jill has a choice at that point. Um, how Jill responds is going to dictate how that communication goes. Okay, So what I teach them is the love and respect. I'd refer you to, in your bibliography, Emerson Egrick's uh, Love and Respect. And what I teach them is uh, that what men want is respect, and so that's the language of value for men. What women want are love, and so that's the language of value for women. So we need to talk each other's language. So when something like that happens, Jack is to, or Jill is to respond um, something like this. Um, that sounded unloving. Did I do something disrespectful? And for Jack, if he were the responder, he would say, that kind of sounded disrespectful. Did I do or say something that was unloving? And it can change, sometimes it can change the course of that communication. So, the gift technique. I'm working hard here, Marcus. I'm trying to get us out on time. Okay. All right. The gift technique. Um, this comes from Rogers, uh, uh, the soul healing uh, love uh, model. Um, and um, rather than uh, respond to things in anger, we want them to control that flesh response. Okay? So, everybody hold up your hand. 
Okay? Hold your hand like this. Okay? Grab your thumb. That's anger. We want to control anger. How many fingers do you have sticking up? Four. G-I-F-T. Okay? You can put your hands down. What we want to communicate to people, what I teach couples, is what we want to communicate is we want to give to our spouse the gift of our soul. Anger is a secondary emotion. Uh, anger is a response to a deeper emotion. What you need to communicate is not the anger. You want to control anger. We're going to control the flesh. What you need to communicate is what that deeper emotion is. G-I-F-T. Guilt. Intimidation or inferiority. I'm feeling intimidated right now or I feel inferior. Or it could even be a sense of shame. So G-I-F stands for fear. T. T stands for trauma or pain. What we need to communicate are those deeper communications. So, and it's kind of funny, as couples begin to grasp this, no pun intended, um, what they what they will often do, I hear stories like um, um, uh, that, um, oh, well, one guy, uh, he, uh, he uh, dropped uh, a woodworking project that he had been working on, and, uh, and he was bringing it in. He'd actually, it was a gift for his wife, and uh, he was bringing it in to the house, tripped, dropped it. I think it was like a, a music box or, or something like that, and, of course, it broke into a million pieces, and his wife and daughters were standing there, and in that one second, you know, he just kind of stood stock still, and he said, and his daughter, his wife said, you could actually see the temperature beginning to rise in his thermometer, and at that moment, his uh, eight-year-old daughter said, Dad, grab your thumb! <laughs> so... <laughs> All right. Um, we next thing you want to address flesh concerns related to conflict. Uh, I put them both, uh, particularly for Jack, on some omega three supplement. I try to help people to also identify their flesh signal. Think about this: when you start to get frustrated or angry, where do you feel it first? That's your flesh signal. For me, I clench my jaw and I may wrinkle my brow. That's your signal. Begin to monitor yourself. Where, where is the flesh beginning to appear first? That's your flesh signal. That means the flesh is getting ready to make its presence known. Uh, and you need to identify that. And then begin to develop. I help them to develop some flesh-soothing strategies. What can you do? Rather than respond in the flesh, you need to ask for a timeout. If you're having a conversation, you're getting angry. You, that flesh signal happens, you need to say, time out, I'm starting to get uh, a little out of control here, and uh, I need to go calm down. Uh, we will come back tonight, we will come back tomorrow morning, I want to address this. It's not stonewalling, you're not refusing to deal with it, you're giving yourself a time out to calm down. And so you identify some flesh soothing strategies, it might be you go out and, and walk for 30 minutes briskly. Uh, I like prayer and meditation, uh, those kinds of things. But you, you do, 
you identify some of those responses and have them begin to practice those uh, as well. For Jack, Jack was drinking about six cups of coffee a day, so I also had him to get down ultimately to one cup of coffee a day um, because caffeine is a stimulant. It will increase your physiological arousal. So we don't want to add to this. So um, a lot of this on here, the I statements, you may be familiar with that. Uh, when you're starting up uh, conversations, particularly ones that might be sensitive and could lead to conflicts, use I statements rather than you statements. That is, you would say, I feel hurt because, rather than saying, you hurt me, that puts people on the defensive. So start up slowly uh, that way. Start up gently. Um, a soft answer turns away wrath, Proverbs says. Pause strategy comes out of Ken Sandy's book, um, Peacemaking for Families. Uh, I won't go into that. You can, you can read that in that book. Um, in Mind Renewal, what I'm doing is helping them to learn to think differently. Um, and so we go through a process of addressing these negative attributions. I teach them how to do a reattribution process or, or taking their thoughts captive uh, in that process. Uh, I also use a form that I've developed. It's called the buoy form. Uh, I won't go into that because we just don't have time. But maybe another time I can do that. Uh, I help them to do joy time. I've described that in your handout. Uh, but this is a time when they can't make any demands of each other. Uh, and they have to spend time with the other person doing something that other person enjoys doing. And so they get to take turns with joy time. Um, finally, what I did was to begin to address lifestyle concerns. Uh, look at schedules. There are some things that Jill said that she could let go of, some responsibilities, and that was a good thing. Um, they needed to uh, explore priorities and make the marriage a priority um, and to do some other flesh management strategies, uh, particularly for Jack. What I helped him to do was to see how his sleep dysregulation because of his job was actually making the situation far worse. And that was very significant. I think you're telling me it's time. So uh, I also referred them finally to develop a community of truth that would help them to develop good, solid, healthy, loving love bonds, uh, for example. So, okay. Well, I hope that was whew, that was a lot in a little amount of time. Uh, my flesh is weak now. I'm tired. So uh, let's let's end with that. Uh, Marcus, you want to say anything? Thank <laughs> you.